Hello and welcome to Business Without My name's Dominic Frisby and Ori Clark is a firm of lawyers and accountants and one of its partners is Andrew Ori, my co-host. And he had the uh, made the observation that the firm has so many interesting clients doing so many interesting things, and he wanted to find a means to share some of these stories with a wider audience. And that means is this podcast. So, Andy, hello. Uh, who is our guest today, and, and what are we going to be talking about? Hello, Dominic. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, our guest today is Roy Moed. Uh, Roy was born in South Africa, uh, grew up in Jersey, and ended up in uh, sunny London in the swinging 60s, 1967, excellent year. Um, yeah, and he he's a, uh, I guess, a serial entrepreneur. His current business is a business called Lifebook, um, which enables people to uh, create a book, tell it tell it, uh, of, of their life, effectively. Um, a lot more to discuss on that uh, in, in due course. And he, previously, he had um, quite a, a large, successful business in the sort of airline catering and logistics uh, industry called Portions. Um, which he sold some years back. Hello, Roy. Welcome to the podcast. Hi there. Thanks for inviting me, Andy. Um, so, Roy, I think I think one of the most fascinating things is 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 really where your business, your current business, is positioned. Lifebook, which um, you know we met we met quite a long time ago, and the simple premise is, is great. It's it's the fact that um, you know people people grow old obviously they've lived these very rich lives and you know wish to you know uh, or there's a wish probably more from the children but the you know there's certainly a wish to try and record some of these stories and it, it also has sort of various benefits for them in terms of um you know helping them sometimes with mental health and things but maybe if you could just tell us a bit more about lifebook to start with would be great yeah, I'd be happy to, um, because it is now my passion and has been for the last uh, nine years, Andy. Um, however, it may just be a little bit useful just to know why I started it and, and what led me to move into more of a passion business than the one that I was doing before, as you rightly say, airline catering and logistics. Having started that as a two-man operation, grown it to 600 people, and then when by the time I sold it in 2007, eight, um, we were 32 people. And that had meant that I'd lived through several types of crises within the airline industry and just relevant to what's going on in the world today, whether it was 9-11 or foot and mouth disease or global economic downturn or avian bird flu. I called it the seven plagues. Every time I built the business up, I'd get a knock of 40%, knock it down. So the effect of that was that I got. I, I learned about re-engineering a business fast and often in advance. And I was fortunate, lucky, visionary, whatever you want to say, at the time to look and, and find ways to um, be, be able to cope with what the world was throwing at us. And the reason we re-engineered down to 32 people was that we realized that we needed to be able to expand and contract, and I called it rubber walls and rubber wheels in the time, um, with what was going on in the world. So that was pretty important to my thinking of, of what was going forward. And um, only recently, because I'm now doing my own life book, we, we came up with a very interesting fact was that in 1995, we created a, we had a spec book for all our airline customers of the food that they could put on the flight. 
And this wasn't really very efficient. It was little Polaroid photos stuck in a folder and shipped out to American Airlines in Dallas or whatever. And so I came up with this concept to put all this on a floppy disk. And you'll probably not remember what a floppy disk is at your age, Andy. Oh, no, I, but, I'm, uh, I'm there. <laughs> <laughs> but I came up with this floppy disk. And so we, we got all of our suppliers to pay 1,500 quid each to be on that floppy disk. We used that money to create this catalog of our products. And then we took that those products and um, we bought 80 Acer computers, the big square green things. And we shipped them all over the world to literally to Hong Kong, to British Airways, to American Airlines. So they all had them in their kitchen. And at a time when executive chefs were trying to make these menus up, but nobody would allow the internet, it was like first year internet, into the building. You couldn't go to American Airlines and say, let's have an internet connection with you. The IT department wouldn't allow it. So at the time, what we did was we did phone-to-phone protocol and the dial-up from that little computer in Arlington, Texas, into our one in Heathrow Airport meant that the chefs could go online, see our products, and order them. And this enabled us to get rid of staff who were taking faxes and typing them in. So that was the first electronic catalogue that existed pre-internet, and we called it ECOPS, Electronic Catalogue Order Processing System, long before other catalogues came out. But it was only in, in reminiscing and going back to that that you sort of pat yourself on the back and think, well, that was ahead of its time because it was just something you did to survive. But taking all of this into account as so where does that take me on my journey towards Lifebook? It was really... I didn't feel that through airline catering I'd necessarily added any value to anyone's life. <laughs> um, and yes, I mean, people have got to be fed in this fast-moving metal tube at 600 uh, miles an hour at 30,000 feet. So it is, it is a, it was what made me in that respect, 30 years of that and, and everything I went through. But um, I was very involved with the crisis for Christmas for the, with the homeless. And um, that taught me a, a big lesson that people who are homeless don't have, it's not that they don't have a home, it's that they don't care enough about themselves to want a home. And it doesn't matter, you can offer them jobs, you can take them off the streets, you can do whatever you like, but you can't make them care. And it's a mental health issue. And then the same was going on with my father. He was blind towards the end of his life and he was depressed. And then I had a friend who basically was going through mental health issues and he bas- he, I said to him, um, you know, well, you know, your kids need you because uh, I was worried about him. He said, well, I'm insured. And that, that kind of was like a trigger for me to say, well, what am I going to do about my father? I went to visit him. I tried to cheer him up. Um, my mother was basically dying in the nursing care downstairs. He couldn't taste his food. He couldn't see and I took him for lunch and he complained about the price of a bottle of wine, as parents do. And then he started two or three stories and I shut him down. I said, oh, Dad, I've heard that before, not that again. And as I left, I wanted to say, don't worry, things will be better next week. And I bit my tongue because I knew they wouldn't. And I knew he'd be more blind and more closer to death. And I came back around the motorway, the M25, And by the time I got to my office, I'd worked out in my brain that I was going to create this project, something for him to want to live for. And I'd have to get somebody to go and interview him who wasn't me, 
who would listen to him and ask him what happened next and how did you feel about that? And I persuaded my secretary, we, we created this folder of the chapters of his life. Now, I'd given him a dictation machine two years before, but he'd never even taken it out of the box. So she went to see him every week and she would interview him. And we got all these stories we'd never even heard about how our ancestor was king of Poland for one night because the king died and somebody, they couldn't be without a, a, a king overnight. So they had to have somebody without kids and etc. So they made this guy king of Poland for the night. Well, I never knew that. And if you go to Wikipedia, the story about Saul Wall is in there. And this was pre-Wikipedia when my dad told us. So the point being that that was the trigger for me to, to create a project for him. And after he passed away, which was quite soon after that, we only got 35 pages. I thought, I've got to do this for more people around the world. I've got to find a way to take my airline logistics. You think you're the serial entrepreneur. You think you're innovative. How are you going to take what you did for dad and what you've done before and try and blend it together to make this global and scalable? And I went to Toronto to a brain health institute with a, a young girl who was a social entrepreneur to try and find out how we could do this. I went to this Brain Health Institute and try to see how you can slow down cognitive decline in elder adults by engaging with them on a regular basis. And it was actually this girl, Elise, who came up with the concept of deconstructing the interviewer from the writer. Because if we had to send writers all over the world or all over a country to go and interview people, it would be... It's very expensive to find the right writer with the right culture, you know, ethnicity or whatever it is, and send them to the right elderly person. So by deconstructing it, the interviewer is always 30 minutes away from, up to 30 minutes away from where the person lives. And the interviewer goes in and they're somebody with empathy, active listening and culture, who we train and we do background checks on before we send a stranger into your grand's 92-year-old grand's home. And then we record those interviews and we developed a tech platform for uploading and downloading. So those interviews go to that platform. That notifies the right ghostwriter wherever they are in the world. And our best American writer, for example, happens to live in Rio. They download it, they write it up, upload it. We print out reviews, send it every two, three sessions to the client, to the author. And it's an iterative process during which they're enjoying it. They're looking forward to the next interview. They're talking to their kids and their family about memories that they've now resurfaced. My dad's comment was he was remembering things he didn't know he had forgotten. And they, they're bringing all this back and they're, and they're engaging. They're refreshing their relationships. So for me, the process is as important as the book, um, the book is a beautiful, priceless thing that's going to be on your bookshelf and with your family. And it's what gives you value to your life because you've actually got something to mark that life, which is not a floppy disk, as we talked about earlier. Our printer has on his website, you can, you can go back and read the Magna Carta now and turn the pages on it, but you can't read a floppy disk from 1996. And that's the point. These books are permanent. The weird thing is, is people don't like talking about themselves. Most people don't like talking about themselves, is it? But in a way, by by getting them to, to recount, and, and, and like you say, who are they talking to? 
you know, they might they might like trying to talk about themselves a bit to their kids, but they tell the stories all wrong and their kids don't really want to hear them because they've heard them before. And and it, it, it's a funny thing, isn't it? It's sort of, you need to be talking to the right person, but also you need to accept that, you know, that it's a positive thing to talk about yourself. It's not, it's not necessarily arrogance or something, you know? But Andy, haven't you found that, that people are your clients, your legal clients, your accountancy clients, will tell you all sorts of stuff you don't want to hear, you've never expected to hear, whereas your, a parent and child would never cover that. They will say, well, I think my son's having an affair with it or my wife's or whatever, and, but don't tell her or don't tell him or my dad was... You know, he was always a mean bastard or whatever. And they, they, they give it up to third parties. And you'll find that in, I'm sure, as professionals on the podcast. They do, but they do it in almost a slightly random way, don't they? Or as in, if maybe that's the thing, isn't it? If, if, if you said, I want you to tell all these stories to this person here... There's there's a lot of sort of hesitation, but is it is it a sort of um, a public shame thing? Is it a kind of like oh, I couldn't possibly be seen to be said in public that I I want to tell my life story? Do you know what I mean? There's something very well. That is a very British thing, uh, you know. Okay. So with with British people, we are more reserved and more humble and stuff, but we still, you know, the average age of our customers eighty two. They're buying it for themselves. It's not being gifted by you. It's they're buying it for themselves. So these are people who actually decided that they want the project, they want to tell their, their story. And because we do it in a structured way, it's not a set of questions, we take somebody through their life journey and they go where they want. There are no-go areas. There are people who don't want to talk about the war. There are people who want to talk about their war, but not with their kids but they still need to get it off their chest. Uh, one, our first actually paying client survived Dunkirk because he'd been um, transferred from his regiment the day before Dunkirk. So he survived it. And he had survivor's guilt. This was a 96-year-old private in the army who'd never talked to his family about the fact he had survivor's guilt because he didn't die at Dunkirk. So it's therapy, isn't it? It's therapy, and it's it's. Well, it's, we say yeah. it's therapeutic. We we don't cross the line into therapy because sure. um, we can't. But but it's certainly therapeutic, and that's what the Brain Health Institute in Toronto said. These are interventions. Your people going in there, forming a relationship, and getting people to reminisce. This is an intervention. It's not a clinical intervention, but it's an intervention which is therapeutic. And is that the point when you talk about legacy? Is that you know, we, we're slightly obsessed with what money we're going to leave behind. You know, I think of Breaking Bad as a, an extreme example of that. But, you know, slightly obsessed with, oh, you know, am I going to... The truth is money tears families apart a lot of the time. You know, m m money, I would say, especially if there's a lot of it, causes more upset in politics than anything, really, you know, when it's left behind. And um, But, you know, the concept of, of legacy, I mean, what do you mean by that? Well, first of all, when you, it's interesting. There's a, an author called Gemini Adams who wrote a book called The Legacy of Love. And she did some research in the US. She's English, but she did some research. The book was written in America. And something like 70% of people surveyed said they would rather have a message from their parent or a letter or a book 
than the money that they actually left them, which you'd think in a material society that wouldn't be the case. Dealing with grief and bereavement, it's it's that connection that's really important. When I talk about legacy, I do a bit of public speaking to um, investment people who, on the value of legacy, not money. And I was a speaker at a conference recently where a lot of very high net worth um, entrepreneurs who'd sold their businesses came together every year for three days and they had 14 speakers they're all talking about Bitcoin and cannabis oil and El Nino, El Nino investments and stuff. But they'd all given up their family business or the business that they'd created and they were there now just as a group of investors and comparing, you know, I did 2% this year and you did 3% and so I don't feel as adequate as you. But their moan to me was they don't have a job. They don't go into work. They don't get a salary anymore. So they don't know their value of their self-worth except through this measure of how good an investor they are, which was never their skill set in the first place. It was how good they were at building a printing business or whatever. So my presentation was one of 14, which was the only one that was on something different from investing. And I, I went through this whole concept of you're going to end up with the legacy that you deserve if you do nothing about it. You have your resume legacy, which is, you know, everything anybody can find out about you by Googling today on LinkedIn or wherever it is. But you actually have also your your own things that you can leave, the things, your, your eulogy, the things that people will say about you when you're gone. And wouldn't you rather do something about that now while you have, have the means? And I tell a story about Alfred Nobel, who in 1868 um, was in Paris and uh, his brother died. And he read that um, it said, um, Alfred Nobel, le marchand de la mort est mort, the merchant of death is dead, because he was the inventor of gelignite and dynamite. And he thought, shit, that's going to be my legacy. And he took his 1.7 million pounds of wealth that he'd got from dynamite and gelignite. And he went to, I think it was the Swedish, whatever, um, embassy in Paris. And he, he created this foundation and the five Nobel Prizes, the, the, the Nobel Foundation. And people now remember him for that. They don't remember that he was responsible for that. There's somebody who had a chance to change their legacy because of a fluke of that printing in the paper of his brother's um, obituary. It's a shame he didn't make one of them how well you could blow something up, though, isn't it? You know, that would be a, <laughs> a, my fifth one <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> for the family, you know. Yeah. Um, that's, a, that's a really good point. I didn't know that the Nobels were, were, were dynamite manufacturers. As you say, that's um, not, not, not probably a great one in the long term, is it? You, you do wonder, you know, everyone retires and then they die. It's the classic man, you know, kind of, you know, stop thinking. Um, you know, it, it seems to be a pattern to some extent. You do wonder whether, you know, is that what's happening? People are people are giving up work at the same time, they're retiring, therefore they're getting dementia. Because there is all that study, if you keep your mind active, you sort of keep dementia off. You know, you wonder whether if you took it easy all your life, would you then not get dementia? I.e., is it because we work, 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 and then we sort of fall off a cliff and we, we don't work because we're just fed up with working? Do you know what I mean? Well, you, th you think that that 
that's the case. And the more active your mind and, and in reality it is. And then you find someone like Maggie Thatcher who had the most, you know, she had no sleep and she worked like a dog and she became demented at a, at a relatively early age. So the theory doesn't always work, but it's... She stopped working though, didn't she? I mean, she retired is the sort of problem. Yes. Yeah, but she was she was already losing it a bit by the time she retired. Okay. In her last year or so. She wasn't what she was, put it that way. No, but I, I think this whole aspect of um, trying to keep engaged, there's, there are 10,000 people a day retiring in the US. Now, my goal with Lifebook is if, if I could get corporates to gift a Lifebook so that somebody having retired and suddenly at 65 or whatever, instead of getting a watch or something, the next six months of their life, instead of treating their spouses as a secretary or doing whatever they're going to do in the next six months and being depressed about it, if somebody came and interviewed you every week and said, okay, so tell me about the first 65 years of your life and your business and your family and where you got to, they've got six months let down before they actually fully retire. And in the meantime, they've done volume one of their life. I'd love that, obviously. Yeah, that's an interesting one. It'd be an interesting story too if you gave it to someone who then was like, I hated my job. <laughs> that would be hilarious. I mean, it's obviously this huge problem, this huge problem, aging population and all of that. I mean, your your sense on it is, is what? That, that you've got to stay engaged. You've got to... Not not sign off is that sort of partly. Yeah, what it's it's famous, Andy. That you know, for example, old people who are locked down. Um, you know, once you're say past eighty, if you're locked down, you don't have contact with other people. You deter your mind deteriorates at a frightening rate, and they actually found that they found. I've narrated documentaries about this, so I sort of know a little bit about it. But they found that you know, um, if you have old people have more contact with kids, if they listen to more music, they'd even do things like dancing, their dementia can actually improve uh, or their brain problems can actually improve. But the scientifically, you know, we can fix broken bones and things like that pretty quickly uh, and science is fairly advanced. But in terms of the mind, how the mind works, we're way, way behind where we are with other physical stuff. The brain's amazing. Uh, there's a book by Norman Deutsch called uh, on neuroplasticity the, called The Brain That Heals Itself, I think. And some of the stuff in there, the, the, the neural pathways can regenerate. They're, they're not broken forever. There's even there's a, one example in there how someone who was blind had their brain wired to their tongue and they could see through their tongue. Not see as we're seeing now, but literally four people in a room, one talking, they could see the shape through their tongue of the hair and whatever. And if that person moved around the room, they would know that they were now, that person was talking because the shape was different. And the brain is amazing. And But you have to, it's a muscle. You have to keep it engaged. And if you look at the Age UK statistics about how many, I think it's 5 million people whose only form of communication with the outside world is TV pre-lockdown and who speak to their families once a month, it's shameful. Yeah, it's terrible. And, and you know, I've been in care homes. I've had relatives in care homes and so on. And just um, the lack of dignity that they're afforded a lot of the time, it's, 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 it's really horrible considering that they've just lived a whole life. You know, I just think all generations of a family should live in a big house under the same roof. 
Yeah. And, you know, the, the old people can take the weight off the parents of looking after the kids. The kids love the old people. The old people love the kids. The kids learn from the old people. All the wisdom gets passed on. You know, I just think it's a much healthier way to live and we don't live like that. Um, so tell us um, about some of the uh, the success stories, Roy, some of the Lifebook success stories that you've had. I think one of the challenges we had the minute um, COVID happened, we had to push all our staff like everybody else to remote working. We were able to do that in seven days. So the, the model works like that. Now staff are project managers, editors, typesetters, um, and sales and accounts. So, so that was uh, achieved very quickly and probably a couple of weeks before many realized they would need to. But the real challenge was our 95-year-old and 82-year-old customers who were used to a face-to-face -face interview. So there we have the most vulnerable market, uh, in other words, people of that age, who need us the most and the business was set up to provide that. So we had to say, well, how are we going to continue this? How are we going to make sure that they have this project and that they keep going? So we came up with a concept to provide them with tablets for those that didn't have tech. And to take those tablets and not and have SIM cards in the tablets. So they didn't need tech and they didn't need a Wi-Fi router and they didn't need to worry about getting onto a Wi-Fi router. And then we trained one of our staff to onboard elderly adults into tech. And we shipped free to all of our customers that needed it, these tablets. There was a blue sticky label on the front. You opened the box, you pressed a button, and then there was a link, and then suddenly they were on a Zoom call with the person who was on the phone with them. The phone could go down. This then enabled them to have their interviews via Zoom and have their weekly contact with the person that they'd seen physically up to now. So our, our biggest success was a 95-year-old who, having done that some eight weeks into lockdown, um, we then connected his grandchildren with him on the same Zoom thing, and we pay for the, the SIM card. And we connected him with his grandchildren. He was able to see his grandchildren for the first time in eight weeks. So I would say, from a success point of view of what has Lifebook done, apart from writing people's memoirs, is keeping that communication going and open with people who thought they'd never get into tech. I've got you. Um, let me ask you another question, Roy. I'm going to change the subject a little bit, but I'm really interested in uh, what you talked, what, this, you know, leaving a legacy, this idea that, of, of leaving a legacy. Um, if you were to, you know, advise people now about, you know, who are just going about their lives, doing their jobs, running their businesses and so on, you know, le think about leaving a legacy. Just talk about that a little bit. What would, what would your advice be? It, it goes back to this whole thing about purpose. What is your purpose? What's the objective? And a legacy doesn't necessarily be, need to be about you. It can be about something you've done, something you've made a change in the world or improved on or contributed to. So I think we often get confused of, you know, what's your legacy going to be being um, Roy Moed or whoever else it is. And... For me, my legacy is going to be Lifebook, that I've enabled that. For other people, it's, it's what, it, what can you do to make it better for the world today? So I, I think everybody's um, answer to that is going to be very different. Would you be advising people to 
you know, if they're bored in their jobs or bored with their businesses, would you say, look, pull your socks up, grow a pair, take a deep breath, go out and do something different? 100%. <laughs> I think I think purpose is everything, um, especially in what's going on in the world today. And um, whether that's uh, any form of the politics we can get in, into or, or the life challenges we've got. What is the meaning of life? What, what are we here for? What is it all about? Um, and uh, I think uh, that eulogy, there, there is no point being busy fools. There's no point, as, as the saying goes, having on your gravestone, I, um, I, w- I wished I'd worked harder. You know, or that's not going to be the the reason of life. Work, work don't die, as they say in uh, in the Caribbean. Work don't die; people do. <laughs> you know, the works. I mean, I I'm actually I I hear it said so often, and I think I'm talking to people who have followed it. You know, do what they love, and they love what they do, and stuff. Maybe because I was sort of pushed into accountancy, uh, but, uh, I feel differently. But I I I think it's obviously a noble statement, but I, it upsets me a bit because it's a bit like, well, you know, yeah, if you can, like, do what you do. Let's say, let's say, okay, so I love music, so I would love to make money out of music, but making money out of music is like, it's almost impossible. Do you know what I mean? And it will break you, you know? And yeah, you might have fun and blah, 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 but do I think, am I annoyed with my dad? He made me be an accountant. Not now I'm 40. Now I've got kids and shit, you know, I'm like, it's and it's a fucking crisis, you know. COVID, you know, it's absolutely destroying musicians. It's like, is it really advice we can give everyone? Because not everyone gets to do what they love, do they? No, but the case is, you know, with with artists, for example, it's very it's very few who actually make the living that they need to make out of their art. But like you, Andy. What you've done is you've done this job in order to be able to afford your art form. And I play polo. I could never earn money as a polo player. Nobody earns, very few people earn money. But you work bloody hard at something else to be able to do that. And, and I think that that's often the case, whether it's music or painting or whatever. Um, I, I get a lot of people with their young kids, they want to be an artist, they want to be a fashion, they want to be a ballet dancer or whatever. And you've got to let them go through that and try and earn a living out of it. But at some stage, they're going to have to move on to something that's going to be able to afford them or be content with having the living that's going to support them to eat and have a roof over their head. Maybe some of that's the story that you get to tell is a lot. If you're if you're if you're someone like me that probably you or you know like a lot of us up front, you're a business person or whatever, and you know yada yada yada. Maybe that's sort of yeah. The other thing you love is the stuff that you could maybe try and think of a way of of bringing forward in your story. Do you know what I mean? Your legacy point that you should maybe make an active thought process about in a humble way, but in a confident way, to not be ashamed of it or whatever and say, okay, well... I'm going to big you up, Andy, and say that the world has enough musicians, it has enough actors, it has enough ballet dancers, the successful ones are overpaid, and uh, you are uh, applying your trade in the oldest profession in the world. People say that prostitution is the world's oldest profession. It isn't. It's accountancy. (laughs) Um, And uh, it's probably farming, actually, but there were accountants pretty soon after that. 
And, and, you know, the very first examples we have of handwriting in ancient Mesopotamia were accounts. So, uh, you know, you're in a long and noble tradition. No, rightly said. But you, well, Dominic, you're great. You, you do what you love. You're a writer and comedian. You've picked one of the hardest possible, but you've done it. So what would you tell your kids? Uh, I, I, I've sent my kid to university to do economics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Roy, um, it's time to draw this interview uh, to a close. It's been absolutely tremendous uh, uh, hearing you speak and very inspiring. Um, we have a, a question we like to ask our guests uh, as we close interviews, which is, what advice would you give your 21-year-old self? And um, I think I know what the answer to that's going to be, but I'm going to ask you that question anyway. So what's your answer? Well, I'm glad you know what the answer is going to be because it's, it's always a hard question and it's a, it's a very hard. At the age of 21, I was, um, I'd been kept down at school, so I was sort of literally out there at what I call the University of Life because I had 29 jobs between the age of 19 and 25 when I started my first business. Um, I was really, really good at the interviews, but rubbish at doing the jobs. <laughs> so I, I didn't keep many of them for long. So as a tw 21-year-old, I guess I should have uh, been thinking that I should worry more because I've never really worried and um, people find that very frustrating. Um, so it's not, it's not great advice, but for me personally, at the age of 21, maybe it would have given me more focus. Um, what was your answer for me, Dominic? I'd like to hear that. Um, think in terms of your legacy and how you're <laughs> going to leave the world and make it a better place. Yeah. Tw 21, I, as a 21-year-old, I'd been to free um, Rolling Stones concert in Hyde Park. I lived uh, next to Hyde Park. I, I wasn't into any form of drugs at all, but I was certainly into cream and getting paralytic in Baker Street on a bottle of Johnny Walker. And I, I wasn't thinking about purpose and, and legacy in my life. I was very much coming out of the uh, Carnaby Street and uh, floral pants and enjoying my life. Jesus, you had floral pants. I need a picture. The floral pants, 1967. The look. Flair, flares. 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 Maybe we need to rethink this question and ask it to the 30-year-old self rather than the 21-year-old Yeah, self. yeah. Well, there you have it, folks. Thank you. Thank you very much, Roy. And um, uh, as we close, just tell us how we can find out a, a bit more about you and, and your company online. Well, thanks for that. Yeah, Lifebook is uh, lifebookuk.com. I'm Roy Mode, and uh, you can email me at roy at lifebookuk. And we'd be very happy to help anybody who wants to develop a story for their family or even what we're doing more these days is for a lot of people who've become terminally ill or someone who's passed away to do a tribute book for them because it's really important to protect that legacy. So that's it. It is. I've got a good line for you, Roy. If you think of the, the plethora of religions that existed, uh, you know, three, four, five thousand years before Christ, um, in ancient Mesopotamia, why did Judaism survive and none of the others? The Jews will tell you tradition. Because they wrote it down. All the other religions were passed on orally. Thank you. That's, that's, yeah. <laughs> well, look, Roy, thanks for coming on, mate. The, um, yeah, I have to say, your business just rocks. So, I, you know, I can't recommend it highly enough. You know, it's, um, 
Yes, just it's just a great thing on on all levels. So I think I think we need to be a bit more blazing as the British, and we need to get it off our chest and be proud of our history, and not yeah, not be afraid to tell anyone about it and drown our sorrows quite. So you'll get much. you'll have Lawrence Fox on your program next, right? <laughs> Roy Mode, it's been great talking to you, Andy. A pleasure as always. Thank you to our listeners, and we'll be back with another episode very soon. And make sure you subscribe to the show so you catch the next episode of Business Without. B- Until then, from Andy Urie and me, Dominic Frisbee, it's cheerio. Cheerio.